0: It's hard to believe that the year is half over. It's the 4th of July weekend as I'm recording this, and I hope you had a great first half of the year and that you've set some goals for the second half of 2017. We're spending the weekend up north in the very northernmost tip of New Hampshire, all the way on the Canadian border. There's not a lot up here except for... Beautiful, beautiful mountains and lakes and hundreds of miles of ATV and snowmobile trails, and we've had a wonderful time being outdoors and exploring some of the scenery up here. The other thing that there's not a lot of up here is internet connectivity, so I anticipate that this episode may go out a little bit later in the day, but I'm still hoping to get it out on the 4th of July. Since the year is half over, that means we had another quarter come to an end, and I wanted to spend a little bit of time talking about a quarterly review. I don't think we're going to get to it this week, but next week I want to spend a little bit more time talking about something we've mentioned in the past, which is doing a quarterly review. So next week in our episode, we'll cover that a little bit. In this week's episode, we have an interview with Dr. John Graham, and I learned a lot from this interview about how to make changes in your life and in your practice to achieve your goals. We also talked about adult orthodontics, how to improve your clinical skills, and how to learn from your peers. So without further ado, let's get into the interview. Dr. John Graham received his dental degree from Baylor College of Dentistry in Dallas, Texas, and then received his medical degree from the University of Texas Southwestern Medical School. After medical school, Dr. Graham completed an internship in general surgery at Parkland Memorial Hospital, followed by training in oral and maxillofacial surgery. Following his surgical training, Dr. Graham received his certificate in orthodontics from the University of Rochester Eastman Dental Center in Rochester, New York. Dr. Graham is only a handful of orthodontists in the United States who is also a physician. An innovator and educator, Dr. Graham lectures worldwide, to both doctors and orthodontic staff on the most advanced orthodontic treatment philosophies available. Dr. Graham has been awarded a U.S. patent for an orthodontic treatment device. He has co-authored several orthodontic textbook chapters and has written many professional journal articles. Dr. Graham holds faculty appointments at the University of the Pacific, Arthur A. Dugoni School of Dentistry, and the University of Rochester Eastman Institute for Oral Health. Dr. Graham is a member of numerous professional organizations and is a contributing editor for the Journal of Clinical Orthodontics, OrthoTown, and a reviewer for Orthodontics, the Art and Practice of Dental facial Enhancement. Welcome to the podcast, Dr. Graham.
1: Why, thank you, Lance. It's great to be with you.
0: We're excited to have you here today. Um, Your path into orthodontics, uh, as we heard in, in the intro and the bio here, is somewhat unique. And so for people who don't know your story, Tell us a little bit about your training and your professional career.
1: Yeah, it is a bit circuitous uh, how I ended up where I am now. And it uh, seems like yesterday, but it's uh, almost been 25 years uh, since I have been uh, doing all of this. I I went to dental school, uh, as you mentioned, in Texas following the footsteps of my dad with uh, the intention of always going into oral and maxillofacial surgery. Uh, When I completed uh, my undergrad at Baylor, I did go to Parkland for oral and maxillofacial surgery residency, where I completed medical school and, and, uh, and did my internship and uh, was f- uh, a little over five years into my six-year program. During my chief resident year, I started getting a little bit, uh, shall we say, um, unsettled would probably be the best term for it. Uh, not finding happiness where I was. I was a real go-getter resident. I worked hard. I published. I operated lots. Uh, you know, I, I felt an obligation to teach the residents below me. So I was uh, all in and thought, well, gee, maybe I'm not working hard enough. Maybe that's why I'm not happy. So my wife and I flew out to Uh, Washington, D.C., and uh, I signed on the dotted line to become a fellow in uh, pediatric craniofacial surgery with one of the world's greatest, Dr. Jeff Posnick. And that, I thought, was going to make me ultimately the happiest because I was just pursuing my education even further. You know what I realized, Lance, is that that wasn't the source of my discontent at all. The, The source of my unsettled feelings was that I'm a homebody. I I love being with my family. I have four kids, uh, uh, a wonderful wife, and uh, I was just in the hospital all the time. I mean, always. And anybody who's been through a surgery residency uh, knows that even when you're not in the hospital, your mind is always in the hospital because you're thinking about the next case or sick patients or whatever. And uh, I just realized that I, if I was going to truly be happy, uh, I needed to make a change. And and I had a very good friend who was a plastic surgery resident. We were both working in the middle of the night in the in, uh, surgical intensive care unit, and both of us had incredibly sick patients. We would say that they were circling the drain. Uh, they were not going to live. And we had been pumping them full of platelets and blood and everything we could think of. And, and at one point, his name is Bang, B-A-N-G, bang and i looked at each other and bang goes what are we doing i mean we've got very good friends who have been through law school or business school who have been working for four years now have families and boats and you know you name it and and we're here at our stinky scrubs at 3 a.m in parkland memorial hospital in dallas with very sick patients and nobody cares and nobody sees us is this really what we want to do and ironically bang ended up making the same decision as me i left surgery and ultimately ended up in orthodontics bang didn't have the luxury of a of a dental degree so he ended up going into uh, interventional radiology but uh, you know at one of those points in your life you need to make a you need to make a decision i came home and told my wife you know debbie if i don't make a change now in 10 years I'm either going to be in rehab, or we're going to be divorced, or both. And it's just not worth it to me. And I hope it's not worth it to you. And fortunately, uh, she was beyond supportive. She did say, "You got one. This is your one. This is your one chance. So, (laughs) so, so you better make this one count because I'm only going to do the reset button one time. Yeah, for more school. Yeah, you know what though? Um, There was a, a very well known. He wouldn't be called a philosopher. you would probably call him a mythologist, a U.S. mythologist by the name of Joseph Campbell. And uh, he wrote a lot uh, about following your bliss and and what is it that can ultimately be the source of your happiness. and And what I have found, and I think what that demonstrated not only to me and my wife, but has demonstrated to my kids over and over again, is that. If you're not happy, you're the only one responsible for making that change, and you need to do it. You don't talk about it. You just do it. Uh, Come what may, you know, the consequences you will have to live with because it's your decision and yours alone, however, that is also the source of unmitigated happiness because it's a decision that you made and you reap the benefits thereof. And I just didn't want to be stuck because, you know, my ego sort of propelled me into surgery was not going to support me 20 years down the line when the reality is nobody cares about your ego. Nobody cares about my ego. The only thing people care about is their own ego. And so if, if that's the only thing that propels you in life, you crash really hard. And, and sadly, some people pay the ultimate price for that. And so I, I just wasn't willing to do that. So I ended up uh, doing orthodontics. I, I went to a tremendous training program in uh, upstate New York and uh, and here here we are in Salt Lake. I mean, we, we went to Phoenix, Lance, uh, for almost a decade, and, and the same thing. Debbie and I sat around one night, kind of looking at each other. Neither of us were happy in Phoenix. It's really hot. Our, we're kind of an outdoors family, and you can't do that very much in Phoenix, and so we just kind of looked at each other and said, what are we doing? If we're not happy, let's quit talking about it. Let's do something, and so we did. We picked up our family of six, and we moved to Salt Lake City, Utah, and I started a Brand new practice at the age of forty-five. And uh, you know, looking back on it, it was scary, but it was the best thing we ever did. We we still pinch ourselves every day when we wake up and and just are surrounded by the beautiful surroundings that we find ourselves in. And uh, you know, it's six years down the road now, and we, we just couldn't be happier. And and it's just been a real lesson for our family at least, and for me, that uh You've got to you got to be a trigger puller. You've just got to if you're not happy, you need to make a change and you need to pull the trigger and don't look back.
0: Yeah, this is great. And I love how you brought up Joseph Campbell and and I'm a big fan of that as well, the hero with a thousand faces. Absolutely. Um, that's that's fantastic stuff. But, you know, I this is this is exactly what I wanted to hit on and I just love how you aren't afraid to to reinvent yourself, to change specialties, to get into a new office. And I think, you know, so many people Feel that they have too much invested in their current trajectory. I talked a little bit about that last week with uh, David Butler. But to make a big change um, towards whether it's a new calling or, or you know, a new reality in your life, uh, yeah. making that you know getting over that hump, uh, I think you're you're a great example of that, and it, and it seems to have served you very well.
1: It, it has. And, and just to your point, you never have too much invested. That is that is a lie that we tell ourselves all the time because it's easy. Because it's an escape hatch. I've got too much invested. There's too much inertia involved for me to make a change. And that's why people end up being miserable and stuck and envious of other people and a cyclical path of sadness. But because they tell themselves this: there's this artificial ceiling above me called past investment that prevents me from making a change. And it doesn't matter if you're ninety nine miles down a hundred mile road. If that's not the road you want to go on, then turn around, go another ninety nine miles back, and start over again. Because you're going to end up somewhere on the on the day of your death, and it might as well be some not only someplace happy, but in a place that you drove to, and other people did not, and other artificial barriers didn't prevent you from from getting to. And it's just uh, the older I get, the I think I I learned so many lessons, and that's one of them, is that you just have to be unapologetic about decisions, make them, and move on.
0: Yeah, that's great. I want to drill down a little bit uh, into this opening of a new office, because I think Mm -hmm. that's probably something that a lot of people fantasize about, maybe, or would relish the opportunity of, if I were to start an office from scratch at 45 years old, uh, knowing all of the things that I've gained from my previous practice experience... What were for you the things that you said, okay, I can do this the right way? Uh, specifically, you know, what, what things did you want to be a part of this new practice?
1: Yeah, well, first of all, there is no right way. Uh, there's no good time to get pregnant. There's no great time to get married. And there's no great time to start a new practice. So you just need to do all of those. If you want to do them, <laughs> uh, appreciate the fact that life is going to suck for a while because it is. And there's no way of <laughs> getting around that. So you just do it. And, and there isn't a right way to do it. Uh, I think that, in my opinion, the very best way is to uh, just pinpoint a few things that define you as an individual, or at least where you are at that point in your life, and then move forward with it. And for me personally, I was at a point in my life, and I still am in this zone, and who knows how long I will last in it, but I sort of moved towards minimalism in my life, not to an extreme, but I really appreciated the fact that that less is more. I also wanted, if I was going to move, and if I had a clean slate, which I did, then man, I was going to grab that clean slate with both hands and shake it until it snapped, because this is the one chance I have to start in a community where nobody knows me. Nobody has any idea where I come from, and so I can do whatever I want. So honestly, and this is no hyperbole, Lance, I decided I'm going to do everything opposite of what I see and what I was doing myself in my own private practice and what I saw everywhere. And and I, I mean, I went uh, kind of to an extreme on that, on that, from the office design to the way that I treated patients, to the way that I gave away money, to the way that I diagnosed and treatment planned, everything. Everything I, I just... I grabbed it by the ankles and flipped it upside down and shook all the change out of those pockets and started all over again. And man, it was just incredibly liberating. I got to be honest with you. It was it was like I had left an old life behind. And I didn't leave a bad life. I had a great thriving practice, wonderful patients, amazing staff. But I mean, I left it all behind. And And, and the way that I practice now is not a shadow of how I practiced six years ago. It was not easy. So I
0: think you've probably piqued everyone's interest here. What what are the things specifically that you feel like that you've built as cornerstones or themes that are that are different or unique about this new practice?
1: I think if you want to talk about the physical attributes of the practice, I decided listen, I, and I, I designed the practice all by myself. I didn't hire an architectural firm. I didn't go to uh, the first thing I wanted to do is I wanted to have nothing to do with orthodontic industry professionals or dental. Dental, for that matter, or medical, for that matter. I, I wanted nothing to do with that because then it ends up looking exactly like everybody else's office does. And I don't, I'm do not i not putting everybody down. This was about a patient experience that I wanted to be completely different. I really wanted people, when they walked in the office, to sort of feel like they'd walked into the wrong place and sort of be a little bit uh, out of body and trying to figure out, am I even where I'm supposed to be? And and listen, I can get down to the nitty-gritty with you about the things I decided I didn't want to have. I wanted no soffits in my office. I wanted no walls in my office. I wanted nothing hanging between the ceiling and the floor like lights or anything like that because I wanted it to be completely open. I mean, Salt Lake is gorgeous. And and the practice and the office that I built uh, is right across from Salt Lake's second largest park which is 14 square blocks of, it's sort of Salt Lake Central Park. It's got a lake and, a, uh, and an aviary, and it's just enormous. But I wanted people to look out on it. I wanted people to feel like they're outside, that nothing here is familiar. I mean, I, didn't, I don't have a wall between my waiting room and the clinic. In fact, you can sit in one of the chairs in my waiting room, and if you if you want to reach back, you can reach your left arm back, and you can put your ar- your hand on the shoulder of a patient right behind you being treated. I figured, look, what's the worst thing that could happen? The worst thing that could happen is this could be inordinately awkward. And need, what do you do? You build a wall. That's easy. We can do that. But I, I haven't had to. It has been awesome. I'll tell you one of the fringe benefits of that is that so many times in orthodontic visits, You know, patients, we hear parents say, look, I don't even think our orthodontist sees my kid. The tech comes out to get him. The tech brings him back out. The tech tells me what happened. I never even saw Dr. Graham. I don't even think he sees my kids. That is obviously evaporated because they not only see me, they hear every word I say to their kid who's four chairs down from the chair they're sitting in in the waiting room. And uh, I just look over and kind of wave at them uh, if they're looking over at me. Uh, that has been tremendously liberating because none of us have this feeling like I'm not communicating enough about the day-to-day visits and things like that so from the architecture itself uh, all the way to to how we do consultations uh, there, now I've never been one I've never done a consultation where I do a clinical exam there's no need for it it's it's worthless it, it doesn't it doesn't provide one iota of clinical data points that that change my a decision-making process when i'm treatment planning a patient so what i decided to do is look i'm going to take away all the tables out of the office in the consult room at least have one little table like for somebody to put their coffee on or something but i come in and i sit on the same couch that they're sitting on that's right next to them and i mean i kind of lean back and i cross my legs or kick my foot up on the uh-huh. on the thing you know i i what i want that they know you know and i it, like so many doctors do Uh, you know, I want them to feel so comfortable. I just walk in and and even with kids, I say, you know, my name's John and it's nice to meet you. They they know I'm a doctor. I don't need to tell them all of that. And I want them to sort of feel like, well, you know, he's sitting in our living room, just sort of opining about his profession and what he thinks about my teeth. That's really how I want people to feel. So I spend a lot of time just looking them in the eye and addressing them by name, which is uh, of utmost importance in my office and with my staff. And, uh, It it is uh, amazing what little changes like that uh, can do in the effort to engender a relationship that's different than you've had before with patients.
0: I think that's fantastic. And I think that that's something that people would really respond to. And and I love what you say about rethinking and challenging all of these commonly held things, even doing the opposite of what you did. I think there's a Seinfeld episode about that. There is. It's George Costanza.
1: (laughs) In fact, I gave a presentation in Denver about a year ago, and it's the it's the George Costanza approach to uh, you know if uh, if every instinct of mine is wrong, then the opposite must be right, and yeah. <laughs> you know what? It's pretty stunning how that works out. It works out pretty darn well. You mentioned your staff, and I'm mm. curious what what do you do to. Get them
0: on board with this vision, you know, maybe if they don't have experience in the industry, that's a little bit easier, but right. but what kind of things do you have to communicate to your staff, or what things do you stress to them about the kind of culture and vibe that you want in your office?
1: That's a great question and 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 it's come pretty natural uh, to me because I've always been very uh, open with my staff and it and it and it went right back to the architecture of the office. I don't have a door on my private office because I don't want staff to feel like they need to knock or there's a a discussion going on that they're not welcome to come in and and, and participate in. And I think they sense that from me uh, as we're talking about patients. I think the number one thing in communicating to staff about how you want them to take care of the patients is they just need to see you not only taking care of the patients in the way that you want to have them treated, but they, they need to hear how deeply you are concerned about each one of these patients and what's going on in their lives, and, and what are we doing to rise to the level of, of service that fits the needs of this particular family or this particular patient. And, and we've all, I've been this way for many, 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 many years, but it, it, you know, you're, you're always refining and you're always getting better. I'll tell you one key thing. There, there are only two things that I tell my staff will make me angry, because I don't get angry at work. I just don't. Uh, but there are two triggers. These aren't micro triggers. These are just triggers, frank and complete and utter triggers that will make me angry. And the first one is if you, if you cause any pain to our patients, uh, myself included, we just, we don't cause, we don't hurt our patients and there's no excuse for it. In orthodontics, there's just no, there's simply no excuse. If you're hurting your patient, you're doing something wrong. You're, you're moving too fast. You're advancing wires too quickly. Uh, you're, you're whatever you're doing. You're just not doing it right because, uh, Sensible biology dictates that what you're doing ought not hurt or you're, you're pushing past those bounds and you're just slowing treatment down. But the second thing is if I have a staff member ever refer to a patient's parent as mom or dad, you know, uh, mom had a question for you, Dr. Graham, or, uh, you know, they're sitting there, they're sitting at the, and this is in the presence of the parent. Yeah. You know, the parent is sitting at the on the bench looking at their at their kid and I sit down and my staff member says, "Oh yeah, mom had a question about scheduling." Uh that that grinds everything in my body to a screeching halt and it's all I can do to not freak out and jump through a window. We we go over this all the time and 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 it's a simple and and it's nothing revelatory here. I think many people probably do this. But it is offensive to me as a human, to go to a pediatrician's office with my child and to have a grown adult pediatrician looking through the chart barely make eye contact with me and say, so, Dad, what seems to be the problem? I feel like saying, well, the first problem is my name is John and, and, and you're beyond inconsiderate to not even attempt to know that because what you've told me is that I'm just a generic stand-in uh, for your boring job. Uh, I refuse to let that sentiment be passed on to our patients. And it's interesting, Lance, if you go and look through the, like, uh, if if I go back and I look through my Google reviews, it is unbelievable how many people in in many different ways comment on how they feel like they are so well known in our practice. Uh, And I think that's just an articulation of the fact that we take it very seriously that Every single person counts and they all have names and we will use those names. And if not, uh, then we're, you know, that'll get you put on probation. If there is such a thing in my office, that will do it right there. Uh, Do that a couple of times and you're not a good fit for our practice. Sure.
0: I love that answer. John, I was reading on your website and I came across this phrase. You said, I'm focused on airway and breathing on aesthetics and function in that order and I think orthodontists might find that an interesting phrase, and I was wondering if you yeah. might elaborate a little bit
1: that's excellent. I hope they do find it interesting because uh and and it's absolutely true. I mean it when I say that. The number one thing that I have learned as I have been a practicing orthodontist is that we have programmed arrogance in our in our specialty, and it comes from the way that we're trained in our residency programs and you know, I've had an interesting contrast of, of how I was treated as a surgical resident and uh, as a medical student and as a dental student. And it's 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 amazing, the chip on the shoulder of, of attendings at dental school and, and in, in ortho residencies. It's, it's shockingly very, very different than medical school and surgery. The, the chips are far greater on, the, on dental faculty. And I, I think that's just a part of our insecurity as dentists not being physicians and the whole narrative there. But... You know, the the arrogance that is sort of beat into us is that this is my way or the highway. And there's, a, you know, you you have your treatment done with a six month smiles dentist or something down the street, and you're you're silly and dumb for making that decision because you're ill informed or you don't care. And and the reality is, what I've learned is I I am here dealing with discretionary income, taking care of problems that are almost never materially impactful in a person's life other than the way that they feel about themselves right and we we hear the mantra all the time no one's ever died from a malocclusion well we say it and nobody nobody actually practices that way in our in our specialty or very few do the most important thing for me is not causing airway problems and that's that's why i mentioned that on my website uh, so many things that we do in our specialty push patients closer and closer to the precipice of obstructive airway disease as they're adults, whether it's headgear, uh, pulling the maxilla posteriorly towards the oral pharynx. or if it's extraction therapy, which reduces the volume of the mouth without changing the, vo- the size of the tongue, or you know if it's uh, not moving the mandible forward when we ought to move the mandible forward. Uh, there, there are just a whole host of things. Not examining the nasal cavity, that's, that's imperative. We've got to do that. And for those of us that have CT scanners, it's very easy. When I walk into a consultation, Lance, the very first thing I talk about with them is the airway. And I, it's not a marketing play. I'm as busy as I want to be. I really want my patients to understand that there is a real difference between practitioners out there. And the opportunity that I have to evaluate someone's airway is beyond impactful and puts straight straightening teeth to shame uh, because straightening teeth doesn't reduce your blood pressure or prevent uh, uh, kidney failure or reduce the chance of having a stroke. It just doesn't. But thinking and and, and actively working on airways does. And I think uniquely orthodontists are positioned more than ENTs, more than oral and maxillofacial surgeons, more than board-certified sleep specialists, more than anybody else. We are uniquely positioned to alter the way that people breathe for the rest of their lives, especially if we can grasp them in their formative years, And it is imperative that I educate patients about that because they just don't hear it anywhere else. Their pediatricians aren't telling them this. Nobody's telling them this. Well, we know better, and we ought to be telling them that. And so that's why I make it important for them to understand. That's the number one thing. The second thing is their aesthetics. It's the main reason that 95% or 99% of the patients that we see every day are in our practices. They could care less about being class 2 subdivision left by one millimeter. They just don't care. And, 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 and it's, it's us being hung up on our own uh, ego that we feel that that needs to be corrected all the time, because it just doesn't. And there's lots of people who talk about this. Mark Ackerman and others have made the the case, and I support them 100%, that we just take ourselves way too seriously. Function is important, and it's number three. And and the reason that I say that is we still lack any really strong evidence to demonstrate that any malocclusion other than a severe crossbite causes severe oral disease or oral problems. Even when it comes to the TMJ, I just got finished writing an article that is going to be in the 50th uh, anniversary edition of the JCO, a commentary on a a landmark uh, roundtable that that Larry White did in the 90s about the TMJ. Uh, We are no closer to figuring out how to consistently improve patients with TMJ disorders than we were 20 years ago. And so for us to fool ourselves into thinking that putting someone into a bilateral class one bite is going to fix that is just folly. And so let's be honest with ourselves and and the reality is that I am here to provide a service that my patients see as aesthetic. So why lie about it? I'm going to be honest and tell them that that is next to airway as long as I don't do anything to hurt your airway. That's my number one. That's my number one goal.
0: Sure. I love that perspective. I think that's as you say that is a unique perspective in our profession. I think most of us have been trained in a certain way and in you know imbued with certain prejudices that probably you know, limit, limit our viewpoint. Oh, completely. Let me switch gears here. I know your office does a lot of adult treatment, uh-huh. and I'm curious how, in your mind, adults are different than, than adolescents in terms of how you market to them, how you address their needs, and, and how you treat them.
1: You know, I used to, I think a lot of orthodontists, myself included, back in the early days of my practice, I used to dread adult patients. Right? We all do at some point because we feel, oh, they're too picky or whatever. They're, they take up too much chair time. They show up all the t- You know, I, I, I don't know. Well, I haven't done this on purpose, but we treat more patients in my practice than, than adolescents. Not by a ton, but I, I think the last time I looked, which was probably about three or four months ago, 50, like a little over 54% of my patients were adults. How do I market differently to them? Uh, I don't. I, I think that uh, my marketing is sort of holistic in that it's the same for everybody, and it's not. More of our marketing is through just um, supporting the community in which we live, and I and I want to be clear about that. I don't post on Facebook, and we don't post on Instagram and Twitter and all these things that we are, you know, giving X amount of dollars to this school and that school. But we give by orders of magnitude more money to, to these schools than any other practitioners around and we know that because they tell us that and and i think that in my opinion at least in my community that goes so much farther than broadcasting to everybody how giving i am if they just find out about it that is so much more impactful just like if you lance find out about someone in your neighborhood that did some magnanimous offer of service to somebody and didn't tell a soul but somehow you found out through the grapevine Gosh, it just means so much more to you because you're like, they didn't do it for ulterior motives. They just did it because they, they felt like it was the right thing to do, and that's, that's what we're trying to do, and I think it works really well. So I wouldn't say marketing is any different for adults. I will say that if you see my practice, it sort of lends itself to an adult audience, I want. Remember, I wanted to do the opposite of, of what many orthodontists do. I didn't want a giant, funny game room with lots of whizzing sounds and lights, and I didn't want to have anybody walk on a yellow brick road. No offense to anybody that makes their patients walk on yellow brick roads. I didn't want even the kids to feel like this was a kid place. And we've had many adolescents and preteens make the comment that they just like the fact that they don't feel... Uh, like this is sort of a kiddie place with a clown in the corner or whatever, you know. So I think that just, just walking in the office, you sort of feel like, okay, I'm an adult and I feel like they, they take me seriously and they take my concerns seriously. And, and, and you know, it's very spa-like, and which is an overused term, but it is. Uh, so it's very relaxing. So I, I would imagine that word eventually gets out through the community that that our practice is very different than many orthodontic practices that they've been to. Uh, Nothing is specifically directed towards adults. I do a lot of Invisalign. You know, we're in in a lead office, a lead uh, Invisalign uh, provider office, and so we we do a lot, both adult and teen. But I I think that that also naturally drives patients who are older to your office because clearly they don't want braces. Do you think that when you're in a consultation with an adult You're
0: kind of addressing different needs or you're coming at it from a little bit of different angle than you would when you have a, you know, perhaps a mother and her teenage child. I try not to Lance.
1: I mean, Mm -hmm. I really talk to these kids eye to eye and, and rarely ever make contact with the parent when I'm having my consultation with them. And I, and I try to speak to them like I would speak to an adult because they deserve that. They're not three unless they're three. Uh, mm-hmm. And then I don't. Then I do speak to them like they're three. But you know, yeah. I mean, even a a, a seven year old appreciates being spoken to like an adult. You know, uh, so I don't really think that my presentation is much different, other than I might be answering more in depth questions that a parent may or that an adult may ask uh, versus a kid or, or or you know that kind of a thing. But I mean, I I still walk in to a to a seven year old who's being seen by me for the first time, and the very first thing I talk about is their airway. And and I review with them the volumetric airway scan, and I talk to them about why it's so important and why I care, and what it is that we can do to either prevent it from becoming bad or make it better if it's not good already. So you know, I uh, from the get go, I'm not uh, I'm not in there trying to make them feel like I'm twelve, you know. Right. But I'm but I'm not walking in there also acting like uh, the cool doctor. You know, I just I I want to just walk in there like a human and tell them, hey, I, I've seen some pretty cool things in your x-ray and I want to tell you about them. Yeah.
0: Um, outside of the office, I know you're pretty heavily involved. You, you, you mentioned writing an article for the JCO and I know you've been published and you've uh, given lots of presentations. How did you get involved in that or how do you view your role kind of within the profession as a whole?
1: Well, you know, I, I didn't seek it out uh, at all. Um, I've, I've never asked to lecture anywhere, not one time. Back in 2005, the vice president of Ormco was visiting my office with my uh, rep, and uh, I had been working on my own on a, on a mini screw design that I had developed and I had uh, applied for and received a provisional patent uh, application. You know, I, I did a provisional patent application, which, by the way, anybody can do on just about anything. A provisional patent is meaningless, but uh, but I had it, and uh, th- that sparked some interest. And so they had the Damon Forum in uh, in Phoenix uh, about four months later, and they invited me uh, up to their suite to talk to them about my ideas. And that kind of one thing led to another, and 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 ended up uh, developing the vector system. I started lecturing just to promote that on the behest of Wormco of because uh, I was getting paid royalties for that and uh, they wanted me to lecture and move that product, which I did. And, and I soon got very bored of hearing me talking about screwing uh, all the time. So I, I decided I'm, I, I refuse to be a one trick pony. I'm not going to be the mini screw guy. So I just worked really, really hard at trying to become a really good clinician. And and following people like Tom Pitts and Stu Frost, who's my best friend, uh, we worked together, we taught together. Uh, you know, we we just worked and worked and worked, and and you know, I just continued to get uh, invitations to to lecture. So I ended up doing that a lot. Uh, I mean, you know, I I've lectured all over the world, from Russia to China, and just about everywhere in between. It took a toll on my family. I did it too much. I've been in a two-year non-compete time frame right now, where. I, I don't lecture very much, and it's probably been the best two years of my life, <laughs> to be quite honest uh-huh. with you. But I will say that I, I love, I love just being with people and and talking and and teaching and learning with other people. So I, uh, uh, it's sort of a, just a natural thing that I like to do. Right,
0: you're you're just providing all the natural segues here for me, John. This is great because because <laughs> the next thing I wanted to ask about was. If a doctor wanted to improve their clinical skills, and, and you, you, you mentioned that, where would you recommend that they turn? You know, they've, let's say they've been out of residency for a number of years. They've, you know, been focused perhaps on getting their practice established and they say, Hey, I want to do beautiful work like John Graham or Stu Frost. What, what are the resources that you think are out there that are, that are really great or, or where should people turn to improve their clinical skills?
1: Well, I think you just got to do what I did. You got to do what anybody that's really great. Does uh, Stu Frost did the exact same thing that I did, and I did it because I saw him do it. And that is, you've just got to find a mentor. You, you need to identify a mentor whose finished cases you admire, and that you want to be like. And then you need to do every single thing that they do. I mean, I, I did this in in college, even. You know, you, you just copy somebody. You know, you don't copy their. You don't produce the same work they produce, but you copy what they're doing to get where they are because every single f- result that you see on this planet is is uh you know you can duplicate it easily if you just put the work in and the and the and the hard part is you got to seek it out and then you got to approach those doctors and many of them are so busy that they just it's not it's not that they don't want to help, but they've got other things going on. I happen to be very fortunate in that Tom. Fitz happened to be sort of, uh, uh, he was at a spot in his private practice where he he had the luxury of allowing Stu and I to come and spend days in his office. I mean, Stu and I have reams of, of legal pads, of notes. We would just follow him from patient to patient. This was not a formal course. This was just following him and, and my gosh, I, I just I I can't do that. <laughs> I mean, you know how that is. It brings your day to a grinding halt. Well, Tom didn't really check emails very often, and he didn't really check his phone very much, so he didn't mind. And and, and that's exactly what you must do. There is no other way. You can't do this in an office course. You can pick up a pearl here or there, but you can't really materially improve the type of clinician that you are and get better and better by doing it on a going to a course, or going to a forum, or some summit meeting somewhere. You can learn a lot of great things. But in my opinion, it's like anything else. You've got to do the hard work, and the hard work is just sitting and staring at cases. I, Stu and I would sit and stare at Dwight Damon and, and, and Tom Pitts's cases for hours, and that is no exaggeration. We would sit with a laptop and just stare and talk about what is different between that case and my case. Is it the angulation of the canines? Is it the, is it the smile arc? Is it is it the way the buckle segments line up? Is it the anterior coupling? I mean, what, what is different? What's the torque difference? And in, in when I put up a case, the best I can do, why is that wildly different than what tom is doing on a daily basis well after a while you start seeing those things and they're not obvious and they're not apparent to you especially if you're doing them every day because you just get blinded to the fact that 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 what you're doing is is not what they're doing and and it was a hard education for me and it took a long time Uh, but i honestly think that whether it is in in medicine dentistry business whatever uh To try to excel exceptionally without mentorship is an absolute exercise in futility. You can't read your way there. You can't listen to podcasts. You can't go to courses. You can't do any of that and get to the outcome that you want. You need to eat, drink, and sleep what it is that a mentor you have identified does every single day, day in and day out. I mean, it got to the point, Lance, where I was memorizing the steps that Tom would go through when he took an arch wire out. I mean, I'm not exaggerating. I would write down... He took the wire out, and then with his left hand and his right hand, he held the ends, and he held it up to the horizon. And then he set it on a piece of paper, and he looked at the wire to see if it was completely level. Uh, I mean, Lance, I was writing these things down. I just knew (laughs) this is the key. This is how you do it. You learn every single step. Because if I learned every step that he did, and I did all those steps, by definition, I would have to be as good as Tom was. And if I wasn't, it's because I wasn't doing one of the steps. It was my fault. And everything we do in ortho is learnable. Everything we do is teachable. There's no magic gift. It is all just an, an absolute proportioned response to how much work and observation you're willing to put in. Right. So we're here, we're recording in June, and I'm assuming
0: that there are orthodontic residents graduating from programs across the country this time of year, and they're getting out and they're kind of starting at the beginning of their journey. And I'm wondering what advice you would have for someone who's kind of at the beginning, uh, trying to figure out, you know, how to chart a course in orthodontics, how to how to be successful, where what, what the landmines are. What yeah. advice would you have for, for new graduates?
1: I think it's pretty, at least in my opinion, it's it's very simple. It's very straightforward. And that is you need to go just visit office after office after office. And you know this, Lance. I mean, the 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 people I think that gain the most are the ones that are willing to just pay a plane ticket, pay for a plane ticket, and go visit office after office. I mean, we did it when we were applying to residency. We did it when we were trying to get into dental school. And you got to do it when you're trying to figure out... What are the takeaways that I want to define myself as a professional in my own practice? Now, part of that you don't have to do if you're going to be an associate, because you clearly are going to get either by osmosis or by being taught pearls and things along the way by a senior associate. But, you know, I didn't do that. I didn't really have one, and and there are many folks that don't. And for those, I would say you just visit over and over, many, many people all, all over the place and and don't visit just the, the the doctors that you hear about on the uh on the Facebook groups because there's believe me those that are in the groups are a lot smaller than those that are not in the Facebook groups right these can be just random and obscure orthodontists that have just carved out a niche in wherever they are and man the things that you learn just by showing up and going to those offices it's it's amazing it's amazing how many different things and i, I think that you know, it's an easy thing to do. I mean, the hardest part is just having the courage to ask somebody, can I come watch you for a day? And I think the point is not to have an agenda, because if the doctor thinks that you're going to take up and suck up all of their time, they're, you're probably going to get a lot of no's. But if you just, from the outset, say, hey, look... I am not going to get in the way. I've got a, I've got a legal pad or I'm going to have my phone on record. And, and if you don't mind, I would love to just observe. I'd love to go chair to chair with you. You don't even need to introduce me if you don't want to to your patients. I just want to watch. If you're okay with that, I, I would love to spend a day in your office. Don't do it more than a day because it's, it's rude. <laughs> but, you know, uh, I, I just love to spend a day in your office. I'd love to watch you do a few consults. I, I'd, I'd love to, I'd love to watch you interact with your staff. You do that uh, twice a month, uh, wow, uh, you know, you've done that now 24 times in a year, holy cow, that's an education. I mean, you're going to yeah. learn about good business practices, bad business practices, great architectural ideas, bad ones, uh, great traffic flow, bad traffic flow, uh, the kind of patient base you don't want and the kind of patient base you do want. I mean, think of all of those things that you would never get from meeting uh, Facebook groups or talking to your buddies or going to some sponsored course somewhere you know the hardest part of all of that isn't coming up with the money to fly there it isn't coming up with the logistics of taking time off from your office it's having the courage to you know reach out to a doctor and say you don't know me at all but i'm just starting and and i've figured out that the best way to learn is just to observe some some doctors would you mind if i came and then buy the buy the office lunch and and observe for a day
0: I love that. Um, I think that's I think that's fantastic advice. John, we're going to jump into this Elevate Express 8. We're going to have eight quick questions for you and get some quick answers. Does that sound Great. okay? You bet. Let's do it. What's your go-to treatment for full-step class twos?
1: Mera appliance. Awesome.
0: What's your standard retention protocol?
1: Uh, upper and lower fixed retainer with an upper and a lower clear Essex retainer. Cool. Who are your role models? Uh, Dwight Damon, Tom Pitts, Stu Frost. I would probably say uh, I, I, throw, I pepper it with a little Jim McNamara. I might even throw in a David Sarver. And uh, I think that's probably a solid foundation.
0: That's a pretty great list. <laughs> too. What's, uh, what's your favorite orthodontic product or instrument?
1: Uh, probably my iCat machine is my favorite uh, product, second only to my iTero scanner.
0: Awesome. What's the best vacation you've ever taken?
1: Hawaii, hands down, Kauai of all of the islands. <laughs> cool.
0: <laughs> What's one great book that you've read recently?
1: I am reading a, a book right now called "The Internet of Money," and uh, it is illuminating, and uh, I've learned a ton. And uh, uh, you know, I've got a lot of I've got a lot of f- favorite books. But uh, I would say that that is probably one of the best. And it's, it's written by an author by the name of Andreas Antonopoulos, who is a, uh, a Bitcoin expert.
0: Uh, that cryptocurrency stuff. I got, I got to re- I'm going to read that book because I, I know this is out there, but I don't feel like I have a great grasp on it. So I'm going to add that to my list here. What bracket system are you currently using?
1: Currently, I'm now using the Henry Schein Carrier Bracket System, ESLX.
0: Awesome. And what is one area of orthodontics that you want to learn more about in twenty seventeen?
1: Probably uh, continue my quest uh, at uh, airway centric uh, orthodontic treatment protocols, diagnostic techniques, and uh, and follow up uh, follow up uh, studies. Awesome. Awesome,
0: well, John, this has been a blast. I can't believe we've we've already gotten through, uh, you know, this much time. Uh, we should probably wrap it up, but I want to thank you for coming on the show and for for sharing this with our listeners.
1: Hey, listen, Lance, what you're doing is awesome. It is hard. It is time uh, intensive. You taking time away from your family, but it is just so illuminating to everybody that. That takes the time to listen because these these are perspectives that you are bringing into people's ear canals that they normally wouldn't get. So I'm grateful to you. This has been a lot of fun, and uh, thank you for your time.
0: Awesome. Well, I, I I hope to visit your your office someday, and and I'll and I'll bring my legal pad when I come.
1: <laughs> You're always welcome.
0: We may only have to do a half day though, because we might have to go skiing or something in the afternoon.
1: You better believe it. You absolutely yeah. better believe it.
0: All right, John. Thanks a lot. Have a great night. We'll talk to you later.
1: Okay. Talk to you later. Thanks, Lance. Thank you for listening to the Elevate Orthodontics
0: Podcast. For more episodes, subscribe on iTunes or visit our website at ElevateOrthopodcast.com. Tune in next week for another great episode.